Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. This is the 30th birthday of the Morris worm, and that was one of the first big malware piece of software that attacked the Internet 30 years ago. We'll give the breakdown on that. We'll talk the guy who, who wrote the, the Morris worm. Uh, has become infamous, and we'll tell you where he is working now. <laughs> In jail. <laughs> no, he just, no, he actually did quite well for himself. <laughs> and, of course, we'll talk about daylight savings time and what it really means to have an atomic clock. Uh-huh. You know, everybody has an atomic clock. You mean in daylight their... saving time. Yeah. Our chief engineer chastises us every year that there's it, no S at the end of saving. Excuse me. I, it turns out, if you look it up, the it's daylight saving time, uh, but then they say in the U.S., it is also called daylight savings time, and so the and so the uh, dictionary allows you to use both. Oh, I did oh, research. You, I did you research. Have, you put me back in my place. Yeah, that's right. I, I I checked out on that. And in in Britain, it's called summertime, not daylight savings time. Interesting. Or not? Yeah, not. Yeah, I call daylight savings time. I'm so glad that they finally added it to the dictionary. I am going with the lack of S. That's right. And, of course, you know, open source is just taking off like a shot now. IBM just bought uh, Red Hat, which, of course, distributes the uh, Linux operating system, which is open source. They paid $36 billion for Red Hat, and they're hoping to make a big entree into the open source arena. Mm-hmm. This week, we're going to feature the woman who is the driving force behind voice over IP. And, you know, we love that. That's what, yeah. that's what you got with Skype and all these different, uh, all these different uh, methods to, uh, to talk over the Internet. And actually, voice over IP is used at the back-end core of telecom, too. And she has driven it, and she's like quite an exceptional person. She's an African-American and a woman in technology, and she was a major driving force in this piece of technology. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Jean. Hello again, gentlemen. I'm I'm including a copy of my last email asking asking for help. I, I didn't make it clear that my head was spinning reading all the reviews about the best equipment and the process for getting good results. I'm using Windows 10 and the issues with some software. Seems there are always a caveats like, is it best to get 720 by 480? Does that mean I lose detail on normal TV? It'd be best to be played. I'm really confused by all this uh, resolution stuff. Sorry, my first email was not clear. Thanks again for your useful help. Well, let's Gene. Let's talk about VHS. VHS uh, is a very low resolution recording medium. It's a consumer level video standard developed by JVC. 
that was launched in 1976. VHS was an acronym for Vertical Helical Scan, uh, which references the recording system that they used. But the marketing people said, let's change that and call it Video Home System for VHS. And that's a, and that's what ultimately stuck. VHS is very low resolution. It is 240 pixels horizontally by 486 pixels vertically. It's 240 by 486. Now that compares to a DVD, which is 520 pixels by uh, 576 lines. Uh, or by HD, which is... Uh, 1920 pixels horizontally by 1080 pixels vertically. So it's a very, very low resolution, and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's never going to look like regular TV. And But when you scan it, you will just spread that low resolution picture over your TV. Um, a lot of people, when they do these conversions, they end up you know, putting them in as digital files, and you can play them on your computer or on your TV. Now, here's a converter device that got great reviews. I mean, that's, I know it's kind of complicated to figure out these devices, but I looked, uh, I looked for a device that had a, a several thousand reviews, and I, and I read the reviews. These were all people by weren't experts in, in this stuff. And, and it got four, it was rated like four, four and a half or 4.6 stars on Amazon. And I'll tell you, and I, I, and I checked, I mean, it was several thousand. These are real reviews. Then I even ran it through a review checker just to make certain the reviews were real and the, and the, and the reviews were, uh, were deemed to be authentic. It is Elgato Video Capture, E-L-G-A-T-O Video Capture. It's digitized video for Mac, PC, or iPad, and it has a USB 2.0 output. It's $87 on Amazon. It captures video and puts it into a standard MPEG-4 format. Now, it supports two formats. You can do 640 by 480, and that's if you want your screen to be in the 3 by 4 layout, you know, three three parts wide, four parts wide, three parts vertical. That's the old TV screen layout, 3 by 4. It also supports 640 by 360, which then is in the 16 by 9 format, which is the broader, you know, the the widescreen that that our TVs are, are on now. But no matter what you do, it's still going to look like low resolution on TV. But I'm going to tell you, the people that use this video capture uh, equipment uh, really loved it. Now, you, you will still have to get a VHS recorder, and you'll plug the USB right into your computer, and it will save it as an MPEG-4 file. That's a, that's a compressed video format. Now, once you get the MPEG-4 file mat, format, you can decide what you want to do with it. Now, I'd recommend that you put it on an external hard drive and store it. But this was what was amazing to me. The people who were using this were wanted to share these old videos with their children and their grandchildren. And they created a private YouTube channel. And they uploaded these MPEGs to the private YouTube channel. And I'm telling you, they said the grandkids loved it. Because then the grandkids could look at the YouTube videos uh, with their iPad, they could look at it with their iPhone, they could look at it with their computer, and they would share it in that fashion th- with the whole family, and they just love doing that. 
And, you know, so in a way, you're better off getting these. Once you once you get these videos made, you're better off getting them up on the cloud, some kind of cloud storage and and share them. And then, of course, you can you can put them on a um, on an external hard drive. If you want to carry them around with you, you can put them on a USB. Uh, you can you can put them on a USB thumb drive, but don't view that as permanent storage because USB thumb drives can be corrupted quite easily. I would use the external hard drive, and so you you want it stored two places, maybe in an external hard drive and on the cloud. But um, that Elgato video capture, digitized video for Mac or PC, uh, it really got great reviews. It was I mean, the software was easy to use, and these were. You know, these were these were folks that were grandparents, and they were trying to you know get into the digital world successfully, and this piece of hardware did it for them. We got an email from Linda in Myrtle Beach, dear Doc and Jim. I'm setting up email on my laptop and have a choice of either using a POP or an IMAP protocol. Which should I choose? I read my emails on both my iPhone and my computer. Enjoy the podcast, Linda in Myrtle Beach. Well, that there are every time you set up an, an email client, it always asks you to want POP or IMAPs, and so I'll tell you what they are, and I'll tell you what I use and what you should probably use. POP stands for Post Office Protocol, P-O-P. It's the traditional method used by email programs to remo- re- retrieve email from an email server. It actually goes to the email server and it downloads the email to your to your computer. So then the email is actually resident on your computer. Then you can go through and you can organize the emails. You can delete them on your computer. And then when it when you pull it down from the server onto your computer, it just deletes the email on the server. You could you could ask it to leave the email on the server, but then eventually you get too many emails on the server. So you just download it and delete it uh, from the server. That's the that's the traditional email client that they had. But then when people started using multiple computers, you'd want to access your email and you'd want to do it from work. You'd want to do it from your iPhone, from your iPad, and you've got a lot of different computers. So actually downloading the emails to any one device didn't make sense. So the protocol that came to be the most popular protocol is IMAP, and that's Internet Internet Message Access Protocol. And the IMAP keeps the messages on the server, and it's a two-way communication. Instead of just instead of just downloading the files, telling the server to download the emails, it actually can communicate two ways. You can actually delete emails on the server. You can organize them, set up subdirectories, and you and any and then if you delete emails or if you make any changes with your emails, all the computers that are accessing your email account see the same thing. So. IMAP is really the most popular, and, and people are really used, you know, used to that because you get Gmail, that's that's in an IMAP format. You get Yahoo Mail, that's in an IMAP, and so that's really the the most popular way to go. So since you have multiple devices, it's it's, it's clear you want to use IMAP, and I've been using IMAP for years. We got an email from Angie in Missouri, dear Tech Talk. I've been looking at TVs and are confused by all the standards. HD, UHD, 4K. Can you shed some light on these TVs so I can sort through the hype? Love the podcast, Angie in Missouri. Well, resolution is what we're talking about here, and it refers to the number of pixels that compose a picture. A pixel is called a picture element. It's a, a single pixel. It's a discrete picture element. It's actually a tiny dot on the screen. On today's TVs, if you've got the 
say, the 720p TV, that has about a million pixels. Or if you take a 4K Ultra HD TV, it's got about 8 million pixels on it. So let's talk about what the uh, what the sort of how how these are characterized. Let's look at high definition television HD TV that has an aspect ratio of sixteen by nine. So it has on the horizontal plane nineteen hundred and twenty pixels, and on the vertical plane it has ten eighty pixels. So people call that one K because there was one thousand vertical going in the vertical direction one thousand lines. So that was 1080, and that was the standard HDTV. And then they went to a higher resolution, which they called 4K or U or Ultra High D. And Ultra High D is 3840 pixels on the horizontal and 2160 pixels on the vertical direction. And what the marketing guys did, and this is why there's so much confusion, instead of referencing the number of vertical lines... Which pre, on HD it's 1080, and on Ultra HD it's like 2160. They reference the horizontal line, so they do 3840, and they call that 4K nominally. It's not quite 4K. If you go to a movie theater, because this was a movie theater digital definition, it will be 4K or uh, or basically um, a little. It will actually be 4K horizontally. Because the TV, the movies, the, the movie theater screens are a little bit wider than your TV set, uh, and the number of vertical lines will be twenty-one sixty, which would be two K. Now the thing is, your TV at home is a, is an aspect ratio of sixteen by nine. So if you've got twenty-one sixty uh, vertical pixels, you can only get thirty-eight forty in that in the on the screen. So actually, they call that ultra HD, and it's not quite four K. But if you go to the stores, they're just interchangeably. Now, if you go to um, if you go now to the next generation, they're talking about 8K uh, displays, and that would be 8,000 pixels horizontally, and you'd have 4,000 pixels vertically. So it would be 4680 by 4320. So there you go. And the thing that confused people is that they flipped when they went from HDTV when they went to the other ones. They flipped by, and they were talking about the horizontal pixels instead of the vertical pixels. We got an email from Christy in Alexandria. Dear Doc and Jim, how can I find all the photos on my computer? Is there an easy way to do this? I got a Windows 10 laptop. Enjoy the show. Well, there is some, uh, uh, Christy, there is an easy way to do it. You open up the file explorer, and they have something that's kind of hidden. I, uh, you know, you, you don't really, they have a, they have a search tab. So what you do, you open up the File Explorer window, and then you select what you want to search. You can click this PC, or you can select a particular subdirectory or particular hard drive. But I just put this PC. It'll search everything. And then and then on the upper right-hand corner, there's like a search box. As soon as you put the cursor in the search box, a search tab shows up, and it gives you all these options. And there's under the in this one of the search tabs that comes down is is called the kind button and you open up that and you say what do you want to search for and you just click pictures and it will automatically search for JPEG, PNG, GIF or bitmaps. And so you just search for pictures and then go and it will search the entire hard drive and give you all the pictures that you would uh, that you could possibly uh, that that are on the hard that are on the computer. Once you find a 
a picture that you and you want to know where is it located, you can right click on the picture and it'll tell you what subdirectory it's in. So you can locate where all the subdirectories are. We got an email from Wendy in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I started buying many products online, especially from Amazon. I tend to rely on reviews, but recently I've heard that the companies pay for fake reviews. How can I tell if a review is fake? Love the show, Wendy in Fairfax. Well, Wendy, that is a huge problem, fake reviews. Uh, And there's a big problem with fake reviews on Amazon. So whenever I look at reviews on Amazon, I look for for at least, you know, several thousand. Because you have a lot of reviews, you tend... They tend it, it's it's they they tend not to be fake. Now there is a website that looks for the telltale marks of fake reviews because people that write a fake review they, they they have a certain way of they've analyzed it and they have a certain way of writing it and they can tell if it's fake by sort of how the review is structured and they then apply their algorithm to assess it, and it's called fakespot.com, F-A-K-E-S-P-O-T.com, fakespot.com. So, for instance, earlier in the show when I was, when I was going to talk about that one um, device for, for, doing, um, for digitizing your VHS tapes, Elgato Video Capture, I ran that through FakeSpot, and FakeSpot said that these reviews are extremely reliable on all metrics. These were very, uh, very good reviews. And I've run it through other cases, and it said they, they were not good. So you can you just paste in the URL of the actual product, either from Amazon or Yelp, and it'll give you it'll give you the review. We got one last email. One more. One more. We got from Deborah in Baltimore. Dear Doc and Jim, I got Windows 10 on my laptop. I want to share photos and MP3s across all my devices. I tried to install Apple iTunes and iCloud, and I got the error message that says it cannot install this app, uh, Apple applications on this operating system. What can be done? Love the show, Deborah. Well, Deborah, you can install iCloud and iTunes on a Windows machine. However, you have to download the application that was written for Windows. When you go to Apple... When you go to Apple iTunes or iCloud to download the software, you have a choice of whether you either download Mac software or Windows software. So the error message that you got shows me that you downloaded the Mac version of iTunes and the Mac version of iCloud, and it wouldn't install in Windows operating system. So just delete those those programs from your computer, go back to Apple, and then look for the Windows version of the same programs. You used to have no trouble installing them. Listen, we love your emails. We do indeed. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network. I heard uh, that's part of the Federal News Radio uh, group here at 1500 AM, 5, uh, 103.5 FM HD2 and 103.9 FM HD2. We'll be right back in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Yes, today we're going to talk about Marion Rogers Croak. Marion Rogers Croak is an African-American woman who is best known as the driving force behind Voice Over IP. She's got a very impressive career. Marion Croak was born 1955 in New York City. At five, she knew that she wanted to be the one who'd be called when something needed a repair. Every time her mom would call to have something repaired in the house, she just said, I wish they'd call me. <laughs> she imagined herself to be a plumber, an electrician, a carpenter. It really didn't matter. She envied that men could go out to work and then fix stuff. And that was her dream. Her father built her very own chemistry lab in the house. And so, you know, because he was, he was be trying dangerous. to encourage her. Yeah. Now, she attended uh, public high school in New York City, and her high school was better known for the bars on its windows than its academics. But here's the thing that was actually interesting. She, but her teachers knew how to inspire her. You know, it all, it all goes down to teachers. Her teachers knew how to inspire her. Her parents inspired her. And she knew that she wanted to be challenged. She knew that she wanted to do something that would change people's lives, and she liked science. So here's a case where we took a young woman who you would think would be in a bad situation in terms of going on for higher academics, but because of the encouragement of her parents and of her teachers, she developed a growth mindset that she could do anything really impressive. In 1968, she earned her bachelor's degree from Princeton University. In 1982, she earned a PhD in social psychology and quantitative science from USC, quantitative analysis from USC. Then she joined AT&T at Bell Labs in 1982. Now, she I went back and I watched some videos of her cuz I just said what what is this woman is she like is she how how could she get along in this? Because she, she's very soft-spoken, actually. Uh, and she said at first, she said it felt a little odd being in a man's world, but she said, she said she loved the work. So she'd work all day on her regular job. Then she would stay late at night in the labs working on other stuff. And then on the weekends, she would spend all weekend writing five or six patents. She was extremely prolific in the 
areas of patents. She dedicated most of her career to the design, development, and launching of integrated voice and data services for AT&T. Now, if I could go back a little to, to explain this, she, when she started at AT&T, their core product was basically switched networks. Mm-hmm. They had these giant switches, and that was their core product. And she was on the data side of the house, and uh, you know the people running the core were king, and the data people were just afterthoughts. But she believed that Internet Protocol and TCPIP and packet switch networking had enough reliability that it could actually ultimately be the core, and you could eliminate all those switches. And so she was like um, like a voice in the wilderness trying to sell this data vision within AT&T. She ended up getting a few other people teamed up with her, and ultimately she convinced AT&T to go with data at its core, and they were the first, AT&T was the first company to actually, the first telecom company to actually have voice, voice over IP at the core at, at their, as, as part of their core service. So even though she was quiet, she was, you know, very, uh, very persuasive. She was self-reflective. As she, you know, as she, she said she's quiet. I, I watched some videos. She's self-reflective. She's introspective. She loves to invent. She holds over 350 patents, mm. including 100 in relation to voice over IP. Her patents really drove the technology. And uh, and so I think the reason she had so much influence is because she was so creative and inventive. She came up with great technical solutions. Now, now there are a few of her technical solutions that people are probably familiar with. She actually pioneered the use of truncated phone numbers for viewers to vote for their favorite television show contestant, like on, you know, The Voice and all. Oh. And she pioneered that. So everybody could, uh, could could vote just by having a truncated phone number. Um, she also filed a patent for text-based donations to charity in 2005. So this transformed how charities would collect money. For instance, in the 2010 Haiti earthquake, she collected over $30 million using her innovation. So this the, the, and those were just two of her 350 patents. She so served, this is like when you when you uh, you text uh, a couple of digits or whatever it is yeah. to uh, to a charity. Oh gosh, yeah, I forget, I'm trying to remember. There was something recently that um, you could do it with a hashtag. Yeah, or you do, something you like do it with a hash. Yeah, you do that. You, you it's truncated phone number. You send it there, and they'll take out ten dollars, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll put ten dollars on your phone bill or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, but she she pioneered that, and that actually transformed how charities would would raise money. Now she served as vice president of the service network in R&D, and she supervised uh, more than 500 engineers during the initial part of her uh, career there at AT AT&T. In 2012, she wrote a letter to young women in technology in the Huffington Post, and she was trying to encourage women to go into STEM. She says, look, you can do it. You, you, You don't have to be loud. You don't have to be pushy. You don't have to change who you are. Now, she also has three children, and she said, you don't have to give up your family or your marriage. You can do it all. But she said, you have to be focused on innovating and actually making a difference. And then you can do it all. It was really an inspirational letter. That was in Huffington Post in 2012. In 2012, she was promoted to senior VP of Applications and Services Infrastructure, where she led 
the Domain 2.0 architecture, which was designed to virtualize the whole network infrastructure. You see, with a... That, that we're going full circle. You, you know, they, they had all these routers and switches at all these hubs. And they said, you know, we could just get rid of all that stuff and we, we could we could virtualize it. It could all just be run in a data center. So all the hardware guys were mad at her because if, if they virtualize everything, uh, they can't sell them boxes. And, and, and she just told the hardware, hardware guys, hey, guys, you better innovate. Virtualize your own boxes and innovate, and then we'll, we'll continue using you. So... She had it when she was there in that in that role as senior VP of Application Service in, Infrastructure. She had two thousand engineers working for her. Uh, she was named on, in twenty fourteen the Black Engineer of the World of the Year, Black Engineer of the Year in twenty fourteen. And then in twenty fourteen, she left AT and T because she said, "You know, I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I I I I, I made it so data would prevail, and we were we were basically a voice over IP company." She left. AT&T to join Google to serve, you know, to go after her next challenge. She currently serves as vice president for R&D at Google, and she's leading Google's expansion of the Internet into emerging markets, including Project Loon, where they're, where they're, where they're you know, launching balloons to provide Internet coverage in, re, in remote areas. She's also pushing for acceleration of Internet access in India, and she wants to go in and help deal with, you know, internet availability, high bandwidth internet availability in high in high population areas. She believes that's the next major area where she can really impact the world. She works with female colleagues to ensure they're comfortable in contributing and don't feel pressures to change their personality to fit their roles in the organization. Now she's also a long distance runner, and she said that's her most creative time. Hmm. She, she'll go out there and do long distance running. That's where she gets her ideas for the patents. So I tell you, I, I watched a lot of videos. I didn't really know much about Marion Rogers Croak until uh, this last week, and I watched a lot of her videos, and I'm really impressed with that, with her accomplishments and w- everything she has done in her mild-mannered and very likable way. So there you go. Everything you want to need to know about Marion Rogers Croak, the um, – uh, African-American woman who is best known as being the driving force behind voice over IP. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please be seated. I know it's very exciting. Well, they're here. cold. I think they're going to they're gonna play a long day. Right. They want to be out of here at 10 o'clock. So. Yeah, that's right. They're little. They're they kind of warm up cocoa here. cocoa or something. Well, as you know, this is, in addition to being a, a, a radio show, it's a classroom of the airways. What? And that means that we evaluate whether the class has been listening. <laughs> and we do that with a pop a quiz. Not a post office protocol quiz. No. But a pop, a pop quiz. quiz. Yeah, I like pop quiz. Pop. Yeah. Quiz. <laughs> uh, earlier in the show, we talked about Marion Rogers Croak. She, of course, is the driving force behind Voice Over IP. She had a long, long career there at AT and T while she rolled that out, and uh, she filed over 350 patents. And she said, when she's trying to solve a problem and invent something new, the thing that she does certain activity that she does that really helps her think and come up with the ideas. What might that activity be? If you know the answer to today's question, well, aren't you the smart one? Do us a favor, pick up the phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're playing with your chemistry set in... (laughs) Canada. <laughs> Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. And the ever-troublesome international line, 877-936-39333 or 1-800-PET-MEDS. <laughs> or if you're calling from a hot air balloon in Napa Valley, you can reach us on Skype. Simply connect to Tech Talk Radio 1, the number 1, and your call will be forwarded to the studio free of charge. Usually these places, other places, like the hot air balloon, <laughs> is, you have something planned involving a hot air balloon? Yeah, I do. You I, do? Oh, no, well, it's coming in maybe next year. Not, oh, okay. not in the wintertime. No, it's, it's not, not a good time to do that. Not a good time no. to do it now. Okay. No. All right. Okay, the next generation of smart glasses may finally be more acceptable. After four years... And $140 million in funding, a company named by the name of North is launching its answer to the Google Glass. They call it Focals, and it works with Alexa. Now, the arms of the glasses are made of die-cast matte aluminum. The rest of the frame made of premium nylon thermoplastic. It looks similar to an acetate kind of glass, you know, standard eyewear. Little looks a little nerdy, actually. But it doesn't look 
like Google Glass. Yeah, they look nerdy, all right. Yeah. Now the glasses. <laughs> you the know gla- what they look like yeah. with those? With the what do they call it? The temple. They look like they're the the uh, glasses you get when you've gone in for a uh, uh, get your eyes dilated. They, they send they, you out with those things. They do have a little bit of that. Uh-huh. Look, I'd have to say. Now the glasses have a very innovative holographic projection system. There's a small projector that sits on the inner arm of one of the glasses, and it projects light into that's reflected off the back of the right lens. And that lens, the back of that right lens, has a hologram on it. So it looks as though the image, which is coming out of the projector, is, is, is right in front of you. It's a very, very excellent way to project. And, you, and the person looking at you can't tell that you're looking at a projection. Uh, it's that's probably the biggest innovation there, and they've actually been working two years on that, and it's uh, it's looking pretty good. They have a ring that you wear, which is the remote control. See, one of the problems with the Google Glass, you, you know, to, to get it to do things, you'd have to shake your head and do all sorts of weird <laughs> See, stuff, you wave problem. your arms. I mean, <laughs> you look like you were sort of, you know, having a fit. But with this thing, you can actually, with this little ring thing, you can actually... Bring things up. You can go down through the menu. You can answer email. And people don't even know what you're doing because you could do it with this device when you're, when you're with your hands in your pocket. Nobody knows what, know what you're doing. So it actually tends to be, I, I think this may be a better, a better solution. I think they're going to have to miniaturize a little bit more, but these guys are on the way to get something which is more acceptable. Now, the problem is they cost $999. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. And you have to go into one of their physical locations, and they'll they'll fit you for it. Uh, they've got one in Toronto and one in Brooklyn. Well, that's conveniently located for me. That's right. So you, you've got to go in there because they, they want to fit it. They because they 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 want to get the uh, the lens matched to your eyes and uh, all of that. Now they do say that that what you they have can to, put your prescription in these things. Yeah, right? what you do, you have to take the prescription with you because they don't they don't have an ophthalmologist there. You've got to take your prescription with you and get them. But uh, I was reading some reviews. People said, well, this these guys with the remote control may be on to something which is more acceptable. All right. So there we go. Okay. okay. Let us go to – we're going to go to the international line, okay. which works today. And this is Wood who's calling us from Silver Spring, Maryland. Wood, good morning. How are you, sir? Morning. All right, Dr. Schertz, please ask the question. Yes, earlier in the show I talked about Miriam Rogers Croak. She, of course, the driving force behind voiceover IP. What activity did she do when she wanted to get some really good ideas to write patents for? Long distance running. That is correct. Wood, congratulations. You're the correct winner. And Dr. Schertz, please tell Wood what he has won today. Yes, you win some tickets to fine dining, and we'll get those those letters out to you next week. All right, Wood, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Hang on a second. We're going to send you back to Andrew, who will take your information. It is Saturday morning, and you're listening to... Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and also 1039 FM HD2. You can learn more about us by going to stratford.edu or to uh, federalnewsnetwork.com. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. The Morris Worm turns 30 today on November 2nd, 1988. That's an old worm. I know. The Morris Worm brought the Internet to a halt. It was a bad day. The patch to protect against the worm was not released for 24 hours. By that time, 10% of the Internet was down and the rest had slowed to a crawl. There was a guy by the name of Robert Tappan Morris. He was a graduate student at Cornell. He really wasn't trying to attack the Internet's computers. He just had a little experiment that he wondered how far it would uh, it would move through the system. And he wrote a, uh, a worm that would propagate from computer to computer to computer. He didn't realize how fast his little experiment would spread and the huge problems that it would cause. He regretted doing it, but once it was released, nothing could be done. The Morris worm had three attack vectors. These are they either send mail. This is a Unix command for sending mail. Fingered. That's a Unix command for actually interrogating what, uh, the uh, details on another device, another server, or the RSH, or execute. That's for remote shell or remote execution command. These three, he actually put malware in so they could infect the computer by executing these three commands. It also used the now class, classic method of stack overflow, which would allow you to get malicious uh, code at a place where it wasn't supposed to be. Uh, it was the first attack program that used the dictionary attack. It had a list of popular passwords, so when it would encounter anything that was password protected, it would run through that list. And since a lot of people use the same passwords over and over again, they managed to break into a lot of systems. Morris tried to hide his tracks. Okay, so he was at Cornell, so he went over to MIT and went into their computer ah. lab, and he launched it from MIT, and and he and he and he hid his connection by unlinking the files from him once it was launched, and so even without this malicious payload, the term that the the worm did serious damage because in, the infected systems quickly did nothing except try to spread the worm. They started once they were infected by the worm, they start they they wanted to go out and see can we spread it through to another computer, another computer, and they started looking for a particular port, port. Port five 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 five, and and they would just start do, using all of their power to spread the worm, and then they they couldn't really do their job. 
it uh, it and it was basically affecting uh, all uh, the Sun operating systems, which are Unix variants. Now, before the worm was finished, it had attacked six thousand of the internet's sixty thousand servers. In the aftermath. DARPA created the first computer emergency response team at Carnegie Mellon to deal with future attacks. Now, Morris was prosecuted for releasing the worm, and he became the first person convicted under the new law, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. He went on to co-found the online store ViaWeb, which was one of the first web-based applications, and he also co-founded Y Combinator, which is an, an incubator out in Silicon Valley. He later joined the faculty, get this, at the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at MIT, where he he first released the the worm, and he received tenure there in 2006. So there you go, Robert Tappan Morris and the Morris worm turned 30. Interesting. Okay, now I want you to know this is a very special week. The the real-life Mario has died. Has he really? Yes. That's so sad. The man who inspired Nintendo's Super Mario character has died at age 84. Mm. Mario Segale was a highly successful Italian-American property developer, and he was renting a warehouse to Nintendo of America back in their early days, and they were late on their rent. (laughs) So Mario went in one day just hopping mad, and Mario was kind of a short guy, and he wore overalls, and he was just just hopping around, and he said, I want you to pay my rent. Well, Mario left a real impression on the Nintendo team when he stormed the warehouse, and and they ended up, when they created this character, they ended up naming it Mario, and they made it sort of look like Mario— now, the original name for Mario was Jumpman when it was <laughs> released. But then after they saw Mario Seagal, they said, hey, that's the guy. We're going to build it right after him. So the, the Jumpman game was changed to Super Mario, and Super Mario eventually became a worldwide recognized item. They also named, they like the name after people. Lady Pauline in the Super Mario game was was named after the uh, an employee of one of the Nintendo of America's wife. So there you go. Real life, Mario is no longer with us, but we have his lookalike still on every video game around. We certainly do. And, of course, so Dr. Schertz asked me to play some Mario music. Yes. He sends me a YouTube of five hours <laughs> of Mario music. Let's jump oh. ahead. Let's jump ahead here because you said this is the only Mario music you ever heard because yeah. you... Um, Never got to the I, next level. I never or, got past probably level two or something. All right, so uh, so I, I I kind of I didn't listen to all five hours of it, but here's something else coming up here that um, um, uh, this is curious. This Ooh. is Mario goes to the spa or something. Oh yeah, or to the circus. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Mario at the circus. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's pretty odd stuff. Uh, hey, let's do this before we take a break. Let's talk about, we're now involved in a battle here. Is it Daylight Saving or Daylight Savings Time? Oh, Why don't you yeah. talk about that? Okay, well, it, Daylight and Saving Time was the original name that they had it. But if you go to the dictionary, they also say that Daylight Savings Time, with an S, is an allowed you usage. You know what I think what this is, frankly, is because it's been screwed up so often that, that, that Merriam and Webster or whatever Fumpkin Wagnalls have, has now acquiesced. 
and they're going to let you do so what's wrong this, this is the, to be right. Language evolves. Ugh, and, I hate that. And what they do, language evolves, just like they create new words, and new slang words become official words in the dictionary. So this is an evolution of the language. Whatever. I guess I'm an old man, and it's old school. It's either right or wrong. So now I— It's daylight saving. No, so now I, who've always said daylight savings, am now right. I waited long enough. And, you know, and, and finally, I'm thinking yeah, let me Webster— break you a check. I'm thinking Webster probably was listening to me. Now, yeah, that now must it, have been what it was. It, now, usually they they use daylight saving <laughs> time. They adjust their clocks forward one hour at the beginning of spring, and they and they drop them back in the in the autumn. Um, and so, the idea for daylight saving time, I'll, I'll go back oh, without there you the. Go. Are, you gonna, gonna, are you going to alternate back I'm and gonna, forth? I'm going to alternate just so you're happy half the time. Was, <laughs> I'm happy none of the time was, these days. It was proposed by George <laughs> Hudson back in 1895. That was the first idea. And then, then it, it turned out the first country to use it was the German Empire. And the Austria-Hungary grew, uh, country organized the first nationwide implementation on April 30th, 1916. And various countries have used it uh, on and off since then. Uh, daylight saving time is generally not observed near the equator because the sunrise t- times don't vary enough during right. the year. And only the, a minority of the world's population uses it because they don't use it in Asia or Africa. Just It's just in the Western countries. It's funny because it really kind of creeps up on you. And if you notice, now, the sunset last night was like just after 6 p.m. The amount of daylight we've lost yeah. in the past you know, six weeks is incredible. It's, it is. And then, now let me tell you, now, this is the time when you want to have your clocks automatically change. You know, and I all my all my clocks automatically change whenever the time changes. Well, if you're old school like me, I don't like I don't like to have to manually do it. I like it automatically. I'm old doing. school, and so this is the deal. I have what they call atomic clocks. Um, now, yes. Now I have atomic clocks, and it automatically changes. But here's the deal: they're they're not really atomic clocks. They're radio controlled clocks. And they're controlled by a radio station that is connected to an atomic clock. Okay, that's what they're. That's what they deal is. And so there's a radio station called WWVB. WWVB. It's at Fort Collins, Colorado, and it's operated yes. by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And most radio-controlled clocks in in North America are controlled by WWVB. It's a 70 kilowatt signal. That has a 60 kilohertz carrier, and that carrier frequency is shifted slightly to send a signal. And they send a signal in one bit per second code, and then it's repeated every minute. So it takes one minute to, to communicate the time, the, the minute, the second, the year, the date, the hour, and all the other information in one minute. Now, it turns out that that particular uh, frequency... Uh, Propagates best at night because it bounces off the clouds. Because it's AM. Because it's AM, and so and so, it's going to turn out that most of the clocks are going to reset at night, and they probably won't reset in the day. So you don't really have an atomic clock. You have a radio-controlled clock, and this atomic clock is more of a more of a gimmick. It turns out in 2011, NIST estimated that there are around 50 million radio-controlled clocks that were out there. Wasn't there something earlier this year that uh, the Trump administration was was going to phase out the atomic clock or something like that? I thought I heard something about that. No, no, they're not going to phase it out. Or, they're, they're always they, making they, it better. They're always making it better. I, okay. Not, I heard something, but then again, 
As aforementioned, I'm getting old, yes. so I'm very sorry okay. to interrupt you there. Yes. Let's take a break so okay. I can regroup, because okay. I need to. I mean, you could go on for the next four hours, but I need to get it together. It's Saturday morning, and we're listening to, or well, we're not. You are. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 105, uh, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, and 103.9 FM HD2. Watch us do the show and mess up live on your device by downloading Periscope and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. So for what, what for once, I'm, I'm kind of right. Okay. Dateline, Washington from VOA News. President Donald Trump's administration wants to shut down the U.S. government radio stations that announce official time, a service in operation since World War II. So the two radio stations that you talked about, he wants to get rid of. Um, let's see here. If you shut down these stations, you turn off all those clocks. <laughs> yeah, all the atomic clocks will no longer have anything to listen to, and it, it'll be it'll be a problem. Uh, you, you see, you can also get you can also get the time standard over the internet. Mm-hmm. The Trump administration proposes in its fiscal 2019 budget to Congress cutting 26.6 million and 136 jobs from NIST's fundamental measurements, quantum science, and measurement dissemination activities. That's a mouthful. It is. I I would hate to see those radio stations go. Although although your computer keeps its time going mm-hmm. by by getting the atomic clock information over the internet. Did you know the WWV is the oldest continuously operating radio station in the United States? First one on the air from Washington in 1919. Wow. So WWV that does the voice and WWVB does the data. Yep. So that's the so that's but you know so that, being an announcer there you're just saying the time is now. <laughs> You just over well, and over and over. Back in the old days of radio, there's to be you're listening to Doctor Richard Schertz. Yes, that was. Asked. It's now fifty three minutes past the hour. Yes. <laughs> so I hope they don't get rid of that. That's like got a real big okay. history with this. All right. Okay. Two botnets are controlling thousands of Android devices, and it's the fight. It's the gang fight of the botnets. Now these two bot fight nets are 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 fighting over control of many unsecured Android devices 
as they use their resources to mine cryptocurrency behind the owner's back. The turf war between these two botnets, one is named F-Bot, and the the other one is named Trinity. (laughs) (laughs) And the other is named Trinity. (laughs) These opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes. Has been going on for at least a month. Both are in direct competition going after the same targets. These are Android devices in which the vendors or owners have left the diagnostics port open and exposed online. Now, this port is 5555, and it hosts the standard Android feature called the Android Debug Bridge, ADB. Android devices support it, but it usually comes disabled, but frequently... It's left enabled either by accident during the device assembly or during the testing process or by the user after he tried to use ADB to debug or customize the phone. Making matters worse, it's default in its default configuration, the ADB interface does not use a password. Now, the number of devices with the ADB port exposed has been detected online between 30 and 35,000 every day when they scan for that port. Cyber criminals noticed these devices, and back in February, a botnet built on a malware strain known as ADB Miner had infected 7,500 devices. Uh, These would be either smart TVs, Android smart TVs, it could be uh, phones or TV set-top boxes. The malware strain evolved and morphed into the new botnet Trinity. And then another competitor came out, the F-Bot, because of because Trinity started making a lot of money in crypto mining, and this, so somebody said we want to get in on that. So somebody released a variation of Trinity, which is called FBot, and that's been mining currency. And what FBot does, it has special codes that deletes Trinity whenever whenever it infects a a, a particular device. It 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 deletes Trinity's uh, code. So the this this battle is going on, and so people with Android devices want to make certain that their ADP port is closed. Interesting. Now IBM has. Let me see here. Here we. Yes. Oh yeah. Let's talk about Tim Cook. Okay. This this was a story a while back. Remember I talked about that spy chip story where somebody in, in Bloomberg had uh, said that Chinese spy chips were. Would basically had been inserted into various pieces of computer hardware that have been manufactured in China, and these were manufactured in the supply chain that had been run, been run by Supermicro, and that uh, and that these had made it into Amazon um, Amazon data centers, Apple data centers, and and it just really hit the industry like 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 a uh, like a total shock when that article came out. It turns out that Amazon and Apple absolutely deny that this ever happened. And so Tim Cook has gone in. They've done a complete audit, top to down, of everything that Apple has. And he is demanding that Bloomberg retract the story. Amazon is also demanding that Bloomberg retract the story. So we really don't know what the truth is here. But we do know, in fact, that our supply chain with with. 95% 95% of the computers manufactured in China, our supply chain is vulnerable. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website at stratford.edu. Check out our programs and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio.
Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.